Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are working along in Mark, and today we're in Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. And we're going to, we're going to begin our day um, with this discussion of the um, Jewish scribes and this kind of condemnation by Jesus. And then we will move into a second piece that deals with the woman and the two small coins she gives. So why don't we get started with this first section? Al? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and uh, as Christy mentioned, our, pa- our passage for today does uh, collect several probably short episodes, and it concludes basically Jesus' conflict with the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, particularly with the scribes. And uh, one of the things we note here is that in contrast with their high standing, not only socially, but also in the religious life of the Jewish people, we find that a poor widow stands as the example of true faith and true love for God. And um, I mentioned to Christy uh, as we were preparing that, um, you know, I've taught Mark for a long time. I preached on Mark for a long time, but it was only really this year in preparation for this podcast that I noticed how often that happens in Mark, that a, an unlikely person, especially a woman who seems to be powerless and helpless, serves as the example, yeah. example for faith yeah. and love and discipleship. It, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's such a small piece, it's really overlooked by our Reformation people. I, I, I found very few references to it, um, but yet here it is, and yes, I think I think it might be fair to make a, a bigger deal out of it than maybe we tend to. I think we so, should. Uh, in fact, I think it's really kind of the point of this passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me ask this before we move on. Um, so often when we talk about scribes, or when Matthew would talk about scribes, he'd talk about Pharisees and scribes. So mm-hmm. can we assume that these scribes are Pharisees in this case? Uh, well, that depends. So... Um, Scribes were the Jewish legal scholars. Um, They were the Torah experts, basically. And they would give rulings on the proper interpretation and uh, observance of the law. Pharisees were devoted to basically keeping in their daily life all of these teachings, all the traditions of the elders and the, the... the rulings of the scribes as well. Okay. So the scribes were kind of the experts, and the and the Pharisees were the ones who were like their followers. Now there is an interesting uh, phrase. Some I forget where it is in the in I think it's in Acts maybe the scribes of the Pharisees. Oh. So there may have been some who were both, um, and obviously the scribes were. I mean, obviously the scribes were very much concerned with you know, meticulously right. fulfilling the law. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they would have been they would have been kind of together. They would have been lumped together in one segment of Judaism. The other segment of right. Judaism, main the main one would have been the Sadducees, the priests, the ones who basically okay. their power base was in the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees, their power base would have been primarily in the synagogue. In the synagogue and, mm-hmm. and, and these are highly educated people. I mean these yes. people be able to write and oh, yes. and interpret and, oh yes. Um, okay. So they could read. They could read the Torah. They they could read the the writings of the rabbis. They they probably had many of the sayings of the rabbis committed to heart. Uh-huh. You know, and 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 they were they were trained. You know, in okay. in a rabbinic fashion, 
um, to give legal rulings on matters of interpretation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and, and then move on then. And we had started with, it begins with beware the scribes. Right. And that's what, that's what Jesus says, basically just beware the scribes. The use of the, of the verb blepite here in the sense of watch out is something that is, is that's, a, that's not an uncommon use of the, of the verb blepo in mm. the Greek New Testament. And um, it calls to mind that uh, in Mark eight fifteen Jesus warned the disciples about to, to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And uh, this, to me, points us back to, all the way back to chapter 3, 6, where uh, Mark tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians conspired together how to destroy Jesus. So I think there's a little bit of that um, sort of um, sense of, of an impending destiny that's, that's being echoed here with, okay. with this language. Okay. It, it almost sounds like everyone is really out to get Jesus. Pretty well, much, pretty except much. Except for a, a handful, right? But but all the people that were in any any kind of authoritative right. role, right. they're out to get him. Whatever He's, their whatever yeah. their place in in the Jewish religious life of the day, the the the, the leaders seem to be out to get him. Now, I think we could say we could also say though that there were exceptions to that. You right, know, of and, course. And we just right. saw, you know, in our in our study of the dialogue about the commandments that right. the scribe and Jesus were really exactly. on the same page. Yeah, and Jesus commends the scribe, and so we need to. I think this is a good um, um, reminder to us that it's best not to apply any sort of global criticism, you know, that all the Jewish religious leaders were, you know, right. trying to kill Jesus, well, because that can easily slip into a false stereotype. And I think that's interesting. You know, I thought about, I thought about that when I read this the first time, we just did the scribe, the scribe that, mm-hmm. that Jesus thought nice things about. And then we have this group and how right. often do we tend to do that? We look at a whole group of people, and we right. judge. And I think there's this, there's this redeeming individual, space here um well and 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 if if you read the gospels carefully you find that there are some members of the council who seem to not be going along with the rest of the council and in trying Mm -hmm. to convict jesus so there's there's some members of the council even who are who are in favor of jesus probably pharisees right so you know unfortunately we've had this stereotype of pharisees and the scribes as being negative and uh, you know Matthew's gospel doesn't do us any favors there because there's a whole chapter where Jesus denounces the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites. Right, right, so, right. Um, uh, but we, yeah, and while I think we can see the truth of that, uh, we also have to recognize Matthew's audience wasn't primarily a Jewish one. It was a Jewish Christian one. Mark's audience was a Christian audience. Right, right. So, so they, they weren't attacking scribes and Pharisees. They were basically saying these things about the Christian leaders as right, well. And, right, and use, right. These were warnings, I think, that were being passed along in the situation of Matthew's community oh, sure. and in the situation of Mark's community yeah, to yeah. the Christian leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I think that's a really important observation, sir. Yeah. Just, just, well, just it, really it's good. important for us to realize that, mm-hmm. that, you know, the Gospels may have been written about you know, Jesus' interaction with Jewish religious leaders, but it was written to a Christian community, right. and those, those, those woes and those, those criticisms were there to warn right. the Christian right. leaders. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's move on. Um, the, um, <clears throat> what, what is the warning here 
that, that he, Jesus is talking to? Well, really it consists mainly of the fact that the scribes were um, really in a relatively high social position and they seemed to expect to be treated as such. Yeah, yeah. Right? They were experts in the law and teachers and as such, they, they had a relatively high social standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see this as early as the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach, which is a second century before Christ mm-hmm. text. In Sirach 39, 4 through 11, we see that the scribes were considered to be um, have a high position in Jewish society. Right. And so Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces right. and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Right, right. And some of that might not really jive with us, but, but all of it really has to do with you know, they saw themselves as having a high social Status. standing and, and they were they demanded to be treated as such. Status yeah. and they saw themselves as being called to this role. They saw themselves as I think they saw themselves as deserving of the, deserving of the, the role honor. and the yeah. accolades. Abs- mm-hmm. yeah. This is pretty this is pretty human, um, Absolutely. Uh, um, human habit, if you will. That's right. how we tend to, to we, how often do we see that? You have to treat me so well. You right. have to, I, I deserve this. Exactly. I'm in this particular role. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Now, um, the most common outer garment for men in Palestine in the first century was the hemation or the cloak, right. which was basically just a rectangular piece of fabric that was draped around the body. Right. The, the robe or the stole was a long flowing robe that signified wealth and therefore was a symbol of high status. And mm-hmm. so they liked to walk around in long robes as a symbol of their high status and their wealth. And the same thing about wanting greetings in the marketplace shows a desire to be honored mm-hmm. and recognized by people as someone important, right. as does sitting in the seats of honor or the front seats in the synagogues or um, ha- having the places of honor at dinner. Right. And and you know basically we can we can see that, that you know there are there are texts where we can see the meal customs of the ancient world typically dictated a fairly uh, rigid um, mm-hmm. um, arrangement of the seating positions by social rank. Right, uh, right. And and so again the issue was one of honor and status. And right. uh, you know we have an interesting parallel in the. Qumran, um, the manual of discipline where, you know, first the priest receded, then the elders, and they were seated very strictly according to rank right, at the Qumran right, community. Right. And, and that would have been something that would have been commonplace in that world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, again, basically, as people of high position, they were demanding to be treated as such. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So let's keep going on. What are some of the other criticisms that Jesus makes? Well, I think in the next verse, uh, Jesus continues with what may have been originally a separate saying. And one of my reasons for this is that in Eusebius's gospel canons, this has a separate enumeration. Interesting. So Eusebius seemed to treat this as a separate huh. saying already. Well, it, it, it feels... Feels a little out of place, mm-hmm. I think, when you it's read it. It's a little different. And this is that that place where the the devour widows' houses mm-hmm. for the yeah. sake of the appearance, say long press, and that dev- it just seems, it, it seems like a different, almost a, a higher criticism or something. Mm-hmm. It even is. more. It's a the much. It's just, a much. It's a much. I mean, the the other one is about their sort of their 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 self image and their self centeredness and their selfishness. This one is more about really the evil that they yeah, were doing. Yeah, this is just evil. Yeah, this is a yeah. whole nother level. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And and um, by, by the way, um, Matthew twenty three fourteen in the King James version 
has this same verse, but it is not found in the best manuscripts. And so if you're oh. working with a King James Version or a New King James Version, you're going to have this in Matthew, and you can say, wait a minute, Matthew has this same verse. No, probably that was added later because scribes hate having, you know, hate leaving anything out. And if it's okay. in Matthew and Mark, it's got to, I mean, if it's in Mark and Luke, it's got to be in Matthew also. Okay, so this was in, this, this, this was, was in Calvin. Added. This, this was, was in Calvin. Yes, though. of course it was because because he was dealing with the Textus Receptus at that mm-hmm. time. And yeah. so that all, that actually makes a lot of sense. And Calvin, you know, he has his, um, his harmony of the gospels. Mm-hmm. What was interesting, the way he organized it is this was this was separated though from the other one. Mm, so he had this in like its own little interesting category. Mm. So what he does is he'll is is he'll take the three different gospels and he'll lay them side by right. side, and then he'll explain a little bit why he chose because sometimes it doesn't always line up, and right. then sometimes there's nothing right. right. Um, but this. This one was interesting because he took this and he's like put this in its separate little category, right. which was interesting. It's the only place where Mark and it, Luke and Matthew all line up. Yeah, on the, this. then he then he that exactly yeah. then he lined yeah. that up together. Yeah. So um, yeah, so Jesus kind of goes in a different direction here. Um, the verb katastheo, um is used metaphorically here to denote an unethical appropriation or misappropriation of the property of widows, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and maybe they were guilty of embezzling property from widows. We don't really know. Uh, The reference to their houses may refer to their actual homes, or it may be a broader term referring to their property in general. Um, And one of the things we need to note is it's not clear whether the widows in question were poor and vulnerable or rich, yet vulnerable to exploitation. Um, One thing that is clear, however, is that from the beginning of the biblical witness, widows were to be the objects of special care in the community. Right, right. Uh, given their precarious position in a patriarchal society, I think it's easy for us to see how they could have been taken advantage of. And Gerhard Stalin, in his uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament article on, on the word for widow, says ba- basically from the social, economic, legal, and religious standpoint, they could be taken for granted. So, you know, obviously some Jewish widows in the first century were no doubt poor and powerless, as were some of the widows in early Christian communities. But we also have evidence that some widows in early Christian communities were wealthy. Well, and I mean, as you're saying this, I keep thinking of Lydia. Right. You know, right. she was she was loaded. Yeah. She dealt in purple cloth. Right. You know? right. <laughs> I mean, and and there, there's some there's some second century um, uh, literature. Uh, one of the second century fathers encourages widows not to be um, not to be like um, addicted to wealth or something. Right. Like right. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we know there's some yeah, that are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We know there's some that are. But but it's still patriarchal. And so there's still there their property and being in some way, shape or form is still controlled by a man. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably where they're open to exploitation. Yeah. I, I yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where the devouring of their houses yeah. and their property. Seems right. To come exactly. Into play. Taking advantage of yeah. that, that yeah. role is, yeah. is, is, is some basically kind of a trustee who yes. would have been in charge of, of managing her estate. Yes, for exactly. Her. And then yeah. taking more money than they should for mm-hmm. that role. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Jesus also criticized the scribes as those who pray at length for appearance sake. And this may remind us at first glance of Jesus' comments in the Sermon on the Mount regarding those who love to pray publicly in order to impress people. Now, Adela Yabra Collins suggests that Jesus is not addressing that question since Jesus links for appearance sake with praying at length 
rather than pr- praying publicly. Mm. But I, it would seem that for appearance sake, or simply the word is the word is prophesy. It's 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 for a pretense mm-hmm. in the in the RSV um, implies that there's some kind of show that's being staged. And so I would I would say yeah. you know it seems more likely that there's some kind of public uh, performance going mm-hmm. on. Uh, and so Collins does conclude that although Mark does not use the term hypocrite, the criticism of the whole passage could be summed up with that word. And that sort of ties it in really to the, that's the main criticism in this whole chapter in Matthew 23, is Jesus just over and over again criticizes the, the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy and goes at great length to elaborate on that in Matthew chapter 23. Yes, yes, yes. A whole chapter of Matthew's gospel basically devoted to that. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, moving on, how does does Jesus conclude this? Yeah, he concludes basically they will receive a more severe condemnation. And, you know, the idea of more severe here, I think, suggests that the scribes who do things like defrauding widows will receive a greater condemnation for the wrongs they do than those who commit the same deeds but make no claim to be experts of the law because they're claiming to be representatives of God and, and, and they're mm-hmm. claiming to be uh, those who, who have the authority to interpret the law, and yet they're not following it themselves. Right. And and this is this is a theme you find in the Hebrew Bible, yeah, you know. Right, God, right, right. In, in the prophets speaking in the name exactly. of the Lord says, "I'm going to judge you more than I'm going to judge any other people because you had my word and you should have known better." Right. Yeah. yeah and the same exactly. thing I think is going on I, here I with think, Jesus and I, the scribes. That makes um, that makes sense, and, and it's it's actually kind of cool because it ties it together, right? Mm-hmm. It, and it, it tells us a little about humanity as sure. well. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So that kind of ends the first kind of. Yep. portion and then we go into a second piece here so yep. tell us about this second piece with the woman well in the second piece then mark tells us that jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury and and this clearly takes place in the temple precincts but we should remember that in mark twelve thirty five, when jesus asks uh his uh, sort of his debate partners about um how can how can the messiah be david's son if David calls him Lord. Uh, uh, Mark slips in this little thing that he was teaching in the temple. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, all of this apparently, or a lot of this, is taking place in the temple. At least the prior episode, right? And so um, that's something we need to note now. In his description of the temple as renovated by Herod, Josephus says that the inner walls of the holy place, or the inner court of the priests, were lined with treasury chambers, uh, gadzofulakia, the same word that's used here. They were lined with treasury Which chambers. Which is interesting. What might <laughs> a treasury chamber be or look like? What? I think it would have been a room just off the okay. off the main okay. court. And, okay. and basically, Josephus says elsewhere that at the time the Romans burned the temple, these treasury chambers were filled with large sums of money, great stacks of clothing, and other valuables that apparently many of the Jewish well-to-do had transferred to the temple. Because, you know, the temple was not only a religious right. site. It was something of a fortress. Absolutely. And and it was a symbol. It was, yeah. it was a symbol of of the the Jewish identity, uh, um, national identity, Surely, if you will. Sure. I, I'm using that in kind of an archaic way, but um, 
it, it was the place. It would have been the place to have your things. It was. It, right. it, it was. It would be a, a, to have your things there would symbolize that they were protected by God as well. I mean, there was a whole thing right. going on there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That this was God's house and God would protect the it, temple. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But even I, I think perhaps even more practically, I mean, it, not only was the temple built like a fortress, right. but there was an actual fortress that was right next right next to it Absolutely. with a garrison of soldiers. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So so this was you know the, you know the, the 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 temple was being used basically as a bank in yeah. this respect yeah and and the uh you know and and uh, the reality is that temples in antiquity played that role oh, absolutely. in many, many cases because oh, yeah. of the security around them right uh, yeah yeah so um uh, so apparently there were probably many treasuries in um uh the temple but very likely this wasn't one of the ones that josephus was talking about because uh, Mark tells us that Jesus was sitting opposite the treasury and watching people coming and going and placing money in it. And and especially the fact that there's a woman who comes and places right. money in this particular gazophilakion suggests that it's located in the outer court. I agree. It has to be an outer court. Yeah. 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 So Mark tells us then that Jesus watched the people putting calcos into the collection box. And, and the word in and of itself simply refers to just the metal brass, bronze, or copper. But it also refer, since coins were made out of brass and bronze and copper, it also refers to coins. Right. And since Jesus tells us that Jesus, uh, Mark tells us that Jesus saw the rich people putting in a lot of calcos, basically, it seems best to understand that calcos here simply refers to money, okay. implying metal coins of different value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Of which there would have been lots of metal coins. Oh, of course, of I mean course. that was that was the primary right. means. I right. mean, metal coins was the primary currency. Yeah, metal yeah, coins exactly, were the exactly. And of course, yeah. in that day, the coins were made out of precious metals, so mm-hmm. they themselves had this kind of intrinsic value. Yeah. Um, so, okay, moving on then um, with this, a lot of a lot of people are coming in. A lot of people are putting them in there, and um, so this woman comes in, right? And she puts in two. Two small copper coins, right. right? Two small copper coins, which are worth a penny in the new RSV, which is, again, you see, I think, the influence of the King James Version continuing even right. to today. Right, yes, yes, Right, yes. because the phrase is lepta duo, uh, two lepta, uh, perhaps, uh, Colin suggests perhaps short for lepta duo nomismata, two small coins, um, uh, which were equal to a quadrantes uh, in the Greek, um, and so we're dealing with what was called the lepton. The copper lepton was the smallest Greek coin denomination. And Mark tells us it was the equivalent of a quadrantes in Greek or the, or the Roman quadrants, which was the smallest denomination of Roman coin. And, and the way you get to that is that the most valuable bronze coin was the os. And a half piece of an os was a, a semis. And okay. a quarter piece of a nos was a quadrants. Okay. And that was the smallest denomination of coin in mm-hmm. the Roman um, currency. So, you know, some people have, have tried to argue the fact that Mark translate the cur- translates the currency into Roman terms, points to the fact that he's writing for a Roman audience, but that's not necessarily the case because Roman oh, and local yeah. coins coexisted Absolutely. in Judea yeah. ever since the Romans had, had occupied, exactly. you know, this yeah. area. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, that's kind of like... You know, American money is used as currency all over the place, and yet they're not necessarily Americans. In fact, they're probably not Americans. Right, 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 right. right. 
So then after Jesus saw the widow putting her two coins in the collection box, he summoned his disciples in order to speak to them. And the summons and the way in which he begins his statement, truly I say to you, mm-hmm. amen, lego, humen, both suggest that he's about to make, make an important point and that this widow is to be seen as an example of faith and discipleship. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's important that we note that in Mark's gospel, it is a woman, and here a widow who is obviously disadvantaged. I mean, Jesus says she put in everything she had, which right. was two small copper coins, right. you know, the, the, the smallest denomination coin in, in, the, in her world. That was all she had, and she put that into the temple treasury. This woman is the one who serves as the exemplar for faith in Mark. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I think it's definitely connected with Mark's theme of discipleship, that, that she is the one who Jesus calls attention to. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, because I agree. I this agree. is not only something that it relates to Jesus' own setting in terms of contrasting her with the scribes and their attitudes and the many rich people who put right. in many coins, right. but also I think we have to think of it in Mark's setting, that, you know, there, there was a reason why why Mark had this in the gospel. You know, obviously, it was part of the gospel tradition that was handed on to him, but there was a message about this. You know, right. from, There was a message in this for his community. Yes. And uh, the whole point of all of this, all of Mark's gospel is, what does it mean to be a disciple? You mm-hmm. know, And we have this contrast between Jesus, the 12. We have this, right. we have this contrast with the, Roman, um, the Jewish religious leaders. And then we have these seemingly nobody people. Right who are, would, would be completely overlooked in society. And yes. they're the ones that Mark calls attention to. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's, uh, I've always thought of Mark of being those who get it and those who mm-hmm. don't. And, and this is a woman who she gets, gets it. it. Yes. She gets she it. She gets it. And, uh, you know, as, as people are reading along, you, you expect her not to get it. I mean, mm-hmm. you expect this person to be... She wouldn't be somebody that you would expect to, to be like an example yeah, of faith. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. yet, if you, if you think about it in life as I've experienced it, it has been people like this who have been the ones who truly get it. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. So then Jesus continues, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. Now, on the surface of things, this might seem contradictory, right? Because she puts in two small lepta, and the rest of them are putting in lots of coins. Right. But his point, then, he elaborates by saying, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to right. live on. So she gave all. Right. They gave perhaps what was convenient to give. They gave perhaps what they wouldn't miss. They gave perhaps pocket change. Right. right. You know, but it wasn't anything sacrificial on their part. Right. Right. She gave all. All she had to right, give. And we'll right. see this is consistent with Paul will say later about giving. It's mm-hmm. not the amount per se. It's really sort of the cost of the right, gift. Right, Yeah, and that's to really the person where Calvin's going to go with this, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So then that the final statement there, that the woman put in everything she had, all she had to live on, could refer to more than the obvious idea that she gave all the money she had. I think that's, that's, the, that's one level of meaning we're meant to get, that she gave all the money she had to live on. But the Greek word is bios. 
she gave all of her bios, oh. which is also has the meaning of life. Interesting. And Collins, in her commentary, suggests that in comparison with the scribe in the dialogue about the two great commandments, right? The mm-hmm. scribe knows what the greatest commandment is, right. that you love the Lord your God with all your heart right. and soul or life, right? right? But the widow is the one who actually fulfills yes. this love oh, for I God like mm-hmm. by offering her last two coins right. to God. She has demonstrated that she loves God with her whole life. Right, right. So there's a bit of a play of word, play on words with yeah, Bios that's here, really I good. think. That's that, really good. You know, it's talking about all she had to live on, all her livelihood, but it's also that she's her, loving God with all her, of her life. Her life. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that, and that so, would be true. Mark does that kind of stuff. Yeah, He's so and so she, you know, she is the one then who becomes the exemplar are not only for faith, but also for what it means to truly love God and to truly fulfill that first great commandment, to love mm-hmm. God with all your life. Um, you know, her faith has has led her to give more than all the other wealthy, wealthy donors put in. And, uh, you know, the thought occurred to me that we may well wonder if some of these wealthy donors had been scribes who devoured widows' houses and whether this widow right. had been the I victim of such that. exploitation. Yeah, I thought yeah. about that because the way it's put together there, at least it makes you ask that question and i think that's deliberate yeah Mm -hmm. and you know whether or not that's the case i think and mark we're meant to see that again one of the people you wouldn't expect an unlikely person in jewish society the scribes were respected by the people the pharisees were respected by the people everything jesus has to say about them is completely opposite of their social standing and and the way they were viewed uh, by the people in Jewish society. This this woman, a widow who had nothing, she would have been viewed as somebody abandoned by God. Right. And somebody who had obviously sinned. Yeah. Right? And, and 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 but in Mark's gospel, you know, those people throwing in their wealth, they may have gotten it by devouring widows' houses, right? right. And this widow who may very well have been the victim of that and could very much have had the claim to say, look, this is all I've got left. I need right. to keep this. She gives it, she gives signifying it. that she has. she's an example of true faith and true love for God. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So what seems to be very small and maybe insignificant couple little passages all of a sudden I think have just really opened up for us. I so. hope so, yeah. Yeah, I think we're meant to see this yeah. as an important I think so too. Passage. I think so too. And I think its placement suggests that as well. So let's um, come back a little bit and I will talk to you about the reformers and some of what they do. Sounds good. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy uh, talk to us a bit about uh, the Reformers and their take on this passage. So tell us about the Reformers, Sure, Christy. sure. Um, well, I really spent a lot of time, of course, with Calvin's commentaries, and then I have the Reformation commentaries, so I have a little bit more on the widow's money in that respect. Um, those commentaries, by the way, are, are just now in publication, so um, there are obviously translations into English of, of many different Reformers. They're a really great tool for me. Of course, one of the things, as I said, our Reformers try to harmonize Gospels, so you could sometimes, when they're really close and parallel, you could take a look at like what Luke says. So that's, um, I get a little bit a sense of at least their interpretation mm-hmm. of this woman with the small coins because it's not really I, I'm, I'm not finding a lot of reference to it Luther never preached on it for example mm. um, so it's uh, but yet it's it it reflects so many themes that we see the reformers talk about so let's go to the first part um, 
where really there Calvin's big point is um, God's law or human law and who has mm. um, who really has the right to to decide what the law is and so his whole point is look God has set the law for us um, and God is really the only authority on that law the scribes have been given this responsibility to kind of tell us what that law is and to follow that law, but they have gone so far astray. And mm-hmm. this is where his point is. They've gone so far astray from that that they aren't really believable. And he spends a lot of a lot of effort really just repeating himself, basically, and how the scribes have just gone too far. Um, and their actions don't match what the law suggests. Mm-hmm. But what is interesting here is really this what you see is this continuity of scripture, you know, this whole providential sense of look, Calvin or God laid out the law in the old Testament. Nothing new is, is, is developed in the new Testament, but rather that, um, we're just learning again, more how to carry that out. Right. That Mm. God is the only author of that. So it's, it's, I love this. I love this arc that Calvin makes. Um, Well, and you know, you could say that to some extent, um, Calvin was kind of like a Christian scribe. Yeah. Because he was he was seeking to 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 really study in depth the 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 new the Bible right. and understand it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so anyway, this is kind of one of Calvin's Calvin's things. So, and as, as he's talking about them, he says, "Look, um, uh, the scribes um, they talk big, but when they go off the rails, and so he describes these different things. These." you know, flashy things, they show off things they do, wearing their fancy robes and praying in public. These are all things that are bringing attention to them. They are pulling away from their job of following the the law. And so he says, look, humans do not have the right to add on to the law. Um, But um, the only, the only law, the law was given to Moses and and Moses then was the one to, to put it to, to the, to the people. So it was this idea that God made it God has dictated how it's to be interpreted. Um, and so obviously this goes to um, eventually <laughs> to the criticism of Roman Catholic practice, mm-hmm. right? So this idea that, okay, so we have all of these priests and they are making up new rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, no, you have no position to make up new rules because the only person that got got to interpret rules or if you will, or, or bring them forth was through Moses. Moses, I mm-hmm, see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately through Christ. And so it was very interesting. Mm. Like your job is to uphold this law that's already been put forth. Um, but there, in, in Cal- and I think this is interesting. In Calvin, there's, clear, there's a clarity of what those laws are. Now, mm-hmm. I, th- you know, I found on my end, it's, it's not as black and white yeah, as, yeah. as Calvin wants it to be. He right. says, thinks this is very black and white. Well, and from a standpoint of hermeneutics, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, we all have to recognize we all bring something to our interpretation of Scripture. Exactly, yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of people uh, miss that. And it sounds like Calvin was a bit naive in terms of his philosophical hermeneutics, in terms of recognizing that right. everybody brings something to their interpretation of Scripture. Exactly. The, the, the scribes were doing it. Jesus was doing it. Right. And, and the question is not, 
do you have an interpretive lens that you use? The question is, how good is your interpretive right. lens? How, how faithful is it to scripture? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there were reformers out there who were willing to say, okay, you're coming from different positions. Can we come Can we come on to one? But people like Calvin, and why Calvin gets such a reputation for being kind of a jerk, is that he decided his lens is right. Mm-hmm. And so everyone else's is wrong. He, he really wasn't one of the compromisers, if you will. Well, and to some extent, I think, and I don't know this about Calvin, but my experience with those kinds of people is they're not even aware that they have a lens right they, exactly. they assume that they're reading it rightly it, because they're reading they're staying true to the scripture and everybody right. else's is, is is adding something to it exactly <laughs> so folks like like Melanchthon was a, one of the great unifiers he wanted to bring people back together and unify Martin Bootser had some of this even though Calvin and Bootser were in conversation they disagreed on 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 something Calvin was just not really wanting to to, to budge ever. I mean, he had this, this, as I said, you didn't even, he didn't even see it as a lens. Um, it was his it, big T truth for Calvin. Right. And, and so that's very, uh, it's very interesting, but I right. think where this takes us is, is kind of an interesting point is, um, it moves us to a relationship between church and state, mm. which is an interesting jump, but I mean, so you have scribes can be interpreters as long as they are following this big T truth, right? Um, and so who, who else is in that space? Well, you have people that are in spaces to carry it out. And so this would include yeah. a magistrate, right? Because there's no separation of church and state. Right. And therefore, you start to really ask questions about kind of just law and just rulers. Mm-hmm. And if those rulers are ruling with God's law in mind, mm. then they are obviously placed there to do so. Now, they're not placed there to, to show off what they're doing, but rather to be servants of God mm. in this mm. in this role of carrying out the law. Wow. And so you could see the you could see how this is causing some some problems. Right. Um, when you have, if you will, different lenses that they don't recognize that they have as they come about even something like the Old Testament. Well, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the end result of that is I'm following the Bible and you're not. Right. I'm following God's word and you're not. And you're not. Exactly. Right? And, exactly. And, and really the truth is my lens and your lens don't line up entirely. Right. And not, and, but there's no possibility of discussing that because I'm not even aware that I'm looking through a lens. Exactly. And so I'm following the Bible and you're not. And you're not. Exactly. Which we see today, right, <laughs> yes, too, which we yes. could talk about later yes. potentially. But, you know, this becomes a, a thing with, with the Reformation as a whole. So you get these, you know, like Geneva and a city. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people wanted to mimic that city and that form of that city that, that had this, uh, this idea that really – True governance, it, it really was a theocracy, if you will. Right. True governance is God's about. law. And, and, of course, then this, this, this leads then ultimately to our modern division of church and state because it's like, okay, obviously you have groups that are being recognized that aren't on the same page and aren't on the same page about governance, even though they're recognized um, as um, part of the Magisterial Res- Reformation. And therefore, you start to get this breakdown of... of um, into these the separation, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting. So this, here's this little passage, but it, it, it brings some of these things. Interesting, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, 
So another thing to jump in, this, this is a little lighter, but the, the background of clerical identity is how I labeled it. And he gives this little history lesson, much like, much like Alan did on the wearing of robes and talking about this was, you know, kind of customary uh, dress, particularly for teachers, etc. But then he goes on to suggest, <laughs> I love this, that the true teacher wears a more modest robe. It still reflects the role of the teacher. So in other words, these aren't fancy robes that are setting you apart as being uh, having more wealth or having more prestige, but rather one of more humility, <laughs> sense Nothing of humility. Ornate, huh? Nothing ornate. Nothing <laughs> ornate. And, um, and then he, of course, he has to jump and say, like those popish priests out right, there who are right. wearing all kinds of fancy vestments. But then you can go look and re- remember, oh, yes, and Calvin wore this this you know traditional scholar's robe to preach in, which is of course our tradition today in the Presbyterian Church. So I thought that was pretty pretty funny in a way, but yet it's it's interesting to think about what you see or how the church developed in terms of its you know external um, types of um, dress and 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 presentation that sure. it kind of reflects back to this passage well and but even in this day you know i mean i have my phd robe from years and years ago and that's the one that i wear when i wear a robe but i would say people in general society would see that as sort of ostentatious i know well see that's a whole thing right, right? yeah yeah it's an interesting space i mean in, in my in my in my church if I'm wearing a suit and tie, I, I'd be willing to bet you $100 every every Sunday I'm the only one wearing a suit and tie. Right. Every once in a while there may be somebody else wearing a, a suit or maybe a, a, a like a blazer, a jacket. Yeah. But not a tie. Not a tie. Not a tie. <laughs> exactly. So what, you know. Ex- what an and so a robe is like even more kind of over the top. Well, exactly. Or a cler- even a clerical collar, really. It's a it's an interesting space. But again, uh, and I think another space on this then is um, Calvin is wants to really push home. You know, one of the big m- monikers that Calvin gets is you know, Christ alone. Um, and and that, he says, look, nobody should ever claim a title other than pastor and because Christ is the only pastor and there are other pastors under him but your job is to be shepherding your people mm. and I thought that was really an important point so I wonder how that plays into our debate about should we be called pastors or teaching elders or ministers of word and sacrament I know isn't that an interesting space <laughs> because most people say that pastor isn't an office in the Presbyterian church they say the office is either teaching elder or minister of word and sacrament right I know yeah. I know but it's, I I've, I have always identified myself as a pastor yeah Not because I'm claiming that I'm more spiritual or anything. It just, that's just what makes, it's what makes sense to book people. Yeah. Yeah. And so here Calvin is kind of putting this forth here for us. But again, that this passage reflects this kind of clerical identity Mm -hmm. in it. And, you know, when, when you come to the end, obviously it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, people that that don't get it (laughs) right Right? people that are have fallen into human patterns of sin without recognizing thinking even thinking or assuming they're doing the right thing because that's how society has shaped them to be and suggesting no that's really not the intent we're we're looking for a more egalitarian Mm -hmm. society and 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 
and and people that that recognize the equality of all people instead of raising ourselves sure above. So well, and that's the whole point of being a teaching elder, right? Is that yep. is that I'm not I don't have any authority that's greater than any other elder in this church. And, right. and, and I certainly uh, embrace that. But to me, pastor is a title of humility, not necessarily exactly. a title of, of, of ostentation. Yeah, exactly, like exactly. And, uh, you know, in my, in my space, I, I always tell them to call me Pastor Christine. Mm-hmm. That's the name that I mm-hmm. prefer, and that's usually that's how I will sign things. Well, and, you know, yeah. I, when I came here seven years ago and was, was uh, meeting the church for the first time, and I preached, you know, and we had the question time afterwards, mm-hmm. one of the questions I got was, how do you want? us to address you. Oh, right. Because I, they knew I had a PhD. Right, right. And I said, well, my name is Alan and has been, you know, for all these right, years and that right. works. If you need anything other than that, Pastor Alan works just fine. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, so, Pres, now we move to the second piece because there's the second the second piece about the window, the, the widow and the, and, the, and the two coins. And so, this was kind of fun because we get a little bit of radical reformation in it and this and 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 in in the reformation commentaries and one fellow peter walpott he's um and he he suggests look this is this is a passage praising getting rid of all private property mm. and so he uses <laughs> he uses this as kind of a, a a call for communal ownership of everything wow. look she gave away all her possessions this is what jesus wants us to do as good christians as to give up everything we own and, <laughs> and 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 live together in, in, in charity and we've seen this over and over and well various. i mean i mean if you want to make that point okay but if you're good looking for a scripture passage to make it you need to turn to acts not the book of mark <laughs> well again he's the only one and right. i am I, again I'm, I'm i'm referencing my the the commenters i just it made me giggle a little bit yeah. but it is it, it's fun i mean mm-hmm. this is the part of the the scripture it's fun because you're like what yeah, right. <laughs> but i i don't recommend that and 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 no one else does either yeah. right he yeah, would be no. considered a radical yeah. but i thought it was pretty fun um and, but she was, according to Peter, the really only true Christian we see here because she had given wow. everything she had. Well, I would agree with him to some extent that, you know, she was the example of faith and love for God in contrast to the scribes on the one hand yeah. and, the, and the 12 on the other. But I wouldn't necessarily say it was because she gave everything she had. And so everybody's supposed to give everything I know. Everything Isn't that funny? Well, I know. It's interesting. So his, you know, he follows through with that saying, well, she's given everything he had that she doesn't have any way to take care of herself. And therefore, this means that... We have to take care of each other in this communal. I mean, yeah. he goes so far. I think he puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah, I do here too. I do too. But going, <laughs> so let's go back to away from the radicals, right? Um, and they really they wanted to emphasize that that God cares about charitable giving. Um, it needs to be from our heart um, that our giving that our giving is done because it it we're called to do it. It's 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 from it's from our being, not from. Are we making a good impression on somebody? Mm-hmm. Are we impressed? And this has come up so recently um, as people in particularly newer members who are coming from different traditions are wanting to put things on. They want to put their names on things. Mm. You know, well, can you, I, I'll give you money for that if you'll put my wife's name on uh, on that uh, new baptismal font, you know, or <laughs> that would be horrible, or um, this new stained glass window mm-hmm. or whatever it is. If my name's on there, I get credit for it. Mm-hmm. Then I'll, I'll buy it for the church, not understanding that right. that's the, the reasons are wrong there, that it really needs to be yeah. a, a gift to God, and it's from your heart. You know, in our church, we have a memorial plaque 
And so it's just one central plaque yes. that has the names of all the people who, to, in whose honor we have received memorials. Yeah. And, you know, there are records, I'm sure, as to what the memorial mm-hmm. money was used for, but it's not, we don't have plaques on everything. It's, right. uh, we don't have the little nameplates on everything all over the church. Right. I have seen some Presbyterian churches that do that. Oh. Yeah, but um, in our church we have just this one central plaque, and I like that concept myself. I like that concept. You're honoring the memory of the person, Mm -hmm. but it's not like you know anybody gets any credit for any specific and kind of the whole body of Christ because of all these names of all these saints that have come before. I I like that fine, but it's not like the individual items. Stained glass window or a baptismal font or something. Super funny story. So my previous church, which is one of the older. Uh, older churches in Nebraska, but it had uh, when they had their when their first building, they actually put something on the wall that showed how much each family gave. I mean, this is way back oh in, the, in the in the you know eighteen nineties. Oh each family gave, wow. you know, trying to kind of oh well, the Joneses gave more than the Kendricks, and I better give more. So I showing myself as I mean, can you even imagine? <laughs> Well, you know, there was a time when 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 it was pew rent, basically, yes. and so yes. in the in the tall steeple churches and the tall steeple Presbyterian churches, you had your pew that you rented, yes. and the pews in the front were the most expensive. Exactly. So how you know, basically, it was like a social stratification so of the church. Is that why nobody sits there anymore? I don't know. <laughs> I've often joked that if we were going to do that these days, it would have to be the the back pews that would be the most expensive. Oh my goodness <laughs> sakes! Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. Well, friends, thank you for listening we're gonna come back and i'm not sure what we'll talk about but we'll find something fun hi friends we're back and we're gonna wrap it up by talking about this theme of um, an unlikely person like this widow becoming the exemplar for faith and what it means to love God and and what it means to follow Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in contrast with both the scribes who were, you know, very much recognized in Jewish society, and in contrast with the twelve who obviously had a important played an important right. role in the Christian church. Right, <laughs> you know, and I I know we all know examples of this. Um, I, I'm going to tell you about one of my young confirmands this year, though, and I think because this is one of those few people that just feel this call from God at a very young age. And, and, and she hasn't been to church. I mean, she was baptized Roman as, in, in a Roman Catholic tradition when she was a baby and hasn't really been to church since. But she started asking her grandma about church. Grandma, going to church. And so grandma brought her. And um, I, her heart is so pure. You know, she's, what, 14 years old. And she, um, she, she said, I, I, I found $2 today. She said, and I mean, this is a kid that doesn't make her own money, and um, and uh, and uh, I found these two dollars today, and I went to—I can't remember exactly the the situation. She went to like the school office, said, "I found these two dollars, and I don't know who they belong to." And they're, the the gal at the office just said, "Well, they're yours." And so, well, I just brought them straight to church. I knew that's where they needed to be, and mm. I thought, "Wow." I mean. I, I, I'm just, I'm taken aback. And yeah. she says this so innocently yeah. and so from her heart. And she did, she stuffed, she stuffed them right away in the piggy bank that we're collecting uh, offering for the wow. confirmation class. And, you know, the other kids are, oh, can I put a penny in? You know, and, and oh, I don't know. I have, I want to keep a dollar. And she's just 
I don't know. Mm. And then we, I asked the young people to go in the sanctuary and just really look around at what they saw. And she, she came back. She said, the cross. I just see that cross. Mm. And I'm just like, wow. I, I don't know. It's like she is just like pulled from God and just, wow. Mm. I, I've, I've rarely seen anything like it. Sure. But it happens. And, and uh, so anyway, I guess it reminded me of this woman. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and for me, you know, it, it also reminds me of some women I've known in the church. Typically, they've been older women. And they've been people who work hard for the church behind the scenes mm-hmm. and don't really want any kind of recognition. Oh, no, they don't. Um, mm-hmm. And they may or may not have money, um, mm-hmm. but they are just so faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these are people that I have just always admired. And, and mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting because as a pastor, you know, we're we're you know we're always front and center. We're we're the ones who get the attention. You know, we're yeah. in front of the crowd. We're in front of the congregation, leading the congregation. Um, and um, you know, unfortunately, this whole notion of well, if something is going to get done in the church, the pastor is supposed to do it. You know, gets mm-hmm. gets developed mm-hmm. from that, but. The, Anybody who's who's spent any time in a church knows that that's not going to happen. You right. know, a pastor is one person. It yes. takes a cold congregation it does. It does. for a church to thrive. It does. Um, now, you know, in thinking about the um, the whole aspect of giving and and knowing what you give, you know, um, I you know the way we do it here is we have a financial secretary and that's her job. She right. keeps track of pledge giving and she's the only one who knows what everyone right. gives. Right. Um, even the treasurer doesn't know that, you know, and so, um, and I don't know it certainly. Um, and you know, I, I like that. And yet at the same time, you know, one of the, one of the tensions I feel as a pastor is the need to lead by example. And so, um, I tried to do that with my own personal giving. Uh, but the only person who knows about it is the financial secretary, really. Right, right, right. But, I don't know. I don't know what the what. I don't know what to do about that because I don't certainly don't want to make an ostentatious show, and right, I'm not giving I've to be seen noticed. Done, but I think there's something about giving when it's from your heart mm-hmm. that is somehow reflected in how you and in, in your action or your your. I I don't I'm not sure I have the right word, but in your presence maybe. Mm. Yeah, I'm Do not you, doing it to be noticed. It, it's yeah. not to be noticed, but yet there's this this uh, this heart filled with giving that comes out and it exudes beyond um, a, a monetary amount. But and so I I think I think if you are hoarding money or you're not you're not in that space of giving it or thinking, then I think that impacts how you are responding sure. to people. Does oh, that make sense? Does. Yeah. I think it absolutely does. Yeah. If you, if you, if you have a generous spirit yeah. in general, yeah. you're going to be generous with money as well as with other things. Right. And if you don't have a generous spirit in general, you're not going to be generous with money and exactly. you're not going to be generous with other things. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I, I know I've heard, I've heard pastors, you know, um, and this was from an associate at a bigger church. And I remember he was, he was telling how he was working on, I, I don't know whether I agree with this. I'm just pointing it out there. But he, he said, look, I, my wife and I are working on tithing and each year we up mm-hmm. our pledge. And he used it as a stewardship campaign. Um, 
I don't think it was meant to be an ostentatious display of how much I'm giving. I really don't think that was his intent. Um, I, I wasn't sure in the long run how I felt about the sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he disclosed how much he was giving. Well, he disclosed what kind of what percentage he was oh, he was giving. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much he and his wife made, but he was like, look, I am working on tithing, and this is how I'm doing it, and each... Each year, I'm giving another percentage or whatever, right. and and such and. And such. I've had that conversation at times with people. You know, I I've I've said, you know, I'm at about seven or eight percent myself, mm-hmm. and you know, I I am working toward tithing, you know, ten mm-hmm. percent. Um, and I do I have that conversation with people, basically basically not to say, you know, look at how great I'm doing, but to say, you know, start where you are and right. just, you know, make it a discipline and right. just continue to, to, you know, step up from there. And I and think that's what he was that. trying to do as yeah. well is, is to use this as a, it, it, it's not this insurmountable goal, just start right. where you can, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and I know we're talking about tithing and now, but you know, I'm, I'm in a space where I'm still just out of seminary. So I've got all kinds of loans on my back. And so, well, and I would never, I would never have that conversation in a sermon. I would never do it publicly. I I would have those conversations with individuals privately. Right. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that from the pulpit. Yeah. And this guy was, although to his, you know, in his life space, he was, he was just about ready to retire. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, really on his way out. I think it was his last year of ministry of, of, of full-time ministry. And so he was telling us where he was at, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and how they had worked at this and, um, I, it worked okay. It yeah. worked okay. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting space, but, 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 you know, then there's the folks out there, they just, they're dripping with money and, and they don't want to part with hardly any of it. And yeah. it's always, well, there's always strings attached to it. Have you noticed this is mm-hmm. like, like I have to have this plaque on it or, well, you know, they if, come back if and I like, give such and such money. You need to do what I want on my particular pet project. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or they come back later and remind you, Hey, I'm sporting this and you need to be staying stuff up there. I agree with, you mm-hmm. know, whatever yeah. it is. Right. And that's really tough. I've had people try to pull that on me, you know, that, you know, if, if, if I don't get my way on something, I'm going to leave the church. And my typical response to that is, well, we'd hate to lose you over that, but if that is what's in your best interest, I wish you the peace of Christ. Yeah. And that's really (laughs) what you have to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, oh, and what I found out, what I found out practically is people who threaten you like that, they aren't really given much. That's the That's ones true. that give, the ones that give are the ones who are committed to the church. Right. And they give because they're committed to the exactly. church. And they're not the people who are going to make that kind of threat. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I, I, I you know, I, I, I have found that, that it's easy for some, I mean, some people do do fall into those folks they fall mm-hmm. into that and that that's a real problem right because right. then your church then it starts to pull apart your church surely because they can see who the people are that right. are, are pulling the strings yeah pulling the strings right. that are making and, and pushing and shoving around and um you know that's that's a, probably a discussion for a different day but i do think that's something a lot of pastors really really struggle with oh i, I you know agree. It re- I agree. and so many of us are called to this and our personalities aren't necessarily very, you know, it's easy to be, okay, maybe I'm just saying I'm a pushover. So this would, I'm an associate, so I'm unlucky. I don't really have to deal with this particular thing, but I can see how this could easily happen. I Mm can see how it could easily become victim to it. Sure. Yeah. Sure. 
Well, I just, you know, I just come back to the, the fact that Mark has these people in his gospel uh, that are just, you know, nobody would have noticed them in that day and time. That's right. As anybody special. Right. But Jesus calls attention to them. Yeah. As people of exemplary faith and here, exemplary love for God. Yeah. And I think we're meant to see that these are the examples for discipleship in Mark's gospel. The the scribes, you know, the Jewish religious leaders are not. Right. You know, right, the twelve right. are not right. in, in Jesus in Mark's gospel. That's right. That's right. Uh, but these un, unusual, unlikely people. Yes. Who you know they just they are people of true faith and and this woman is a, is a woman who is willing to give her whole life to God. Yep. You know that these are the people who are examples for yeah. for for our discipleship. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Thanks. Alan. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.